You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, we are joined by Emron Maya. Emron is a gastroenterologist, lecturer, author, neuroscientist, filmmaker, and a professor in the departments of medicine, physiology, and psychiatry at the School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Mayer is a pioneer of medical research into brain-gut interactions. Past books include the Mind-Gut Connection and the most recently, the Gut Immune Connection. Emron, such a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Nice to be in your show. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. So when I was uh, preparing for this, I kept thinking about a Hippocrates quote, which he said sometime probably about two and a half thousand years ago, and he said, all disease starts in the gut. Uh, this is a topic I know that you largely look at in your latest book, The Gut Immune Connection. Does he have a point? He definitely has a point. And, um, you know, I'm always amazed. Um, I mean, he's from the from the Western um, medicine view, the, the, you know, the, the traditional Western teachings of medicine. He stands out, but it's equally amazing to me, you know, looking at at Asian um, traditional teachings, how much on the on the point they were with their concepts, you know, like, um, and and how do they get it without science, you know? And some of these concepts have persisted for thousands of years. Um, and yeah, coming back to Hippocrates, it, it must have been a lot of observation, and um, there were astute clinicians. We have lost that ability. I mean, even in my generation, when I see how I was trained, for example, to differentiate um, sounds from the heart, the this whole art of auscultation, you know, you could hear things that that nobody else would would ever hear listening to your heart, and the same thing listening to your your the sounds in your gut. Um, um, neurologists could make diagnoses without a CT scan, you know they most of these skills have disappeared and so just in the last 15 years because they're, they're no longer being taught um, we, we just get a ct scan or we get some blood tests or um, so you can imagine somebody like hippocrates how much more trained their minds were to pick up things that we don't even see anymore or hear or smell or you know so that's what i think uh, but it, it's clearly this concept is clearly couldn't be more correct when um and and i'm saying this in my book it's it's not just because i'm a gastroenterologist you know i'm not not biased because of that <clears throat> but when you look at it you know how, what central role the gut takes in in our body's homeostasis or you know um, overall functioning it's obviously way beyond just a digestive organ it's it is a homeostatic organ that it connects and has long distance connections to everything else. Um, and then it's the organ that we interact with our environment so intensely with the food that we put in <clears throat> that, yeah, that, that statement um, 
So today, and this is sort of one of the messages in, 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 in my book, that many of these, this epidemic of, of um, non-communicable chronic diseases that we're experiencing, that has sort of been forgotten with the pandemic, and the pandemic is much more dramatic, and, um, but this epidemic has been going on for 75 years, and you could trace it back really in many ways to the gut, um, and the things that we've done to the gut and the gut microbes um, with our life, with our modern lifestyles and the chemicals we put in and the, the kind of food we put in. Yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of Hippocrates, not just right. because of that quote, but also because of his general, you know, holistic view of, of, of health. And Amazing, amazing. And you mentioned um, microbes there. One of the main things that I know that you talk about in your work is the gut microbiome. This is something which we've uh, talked about previously on the show. I just figured for the person listening to this now that just may not know, uh, how would you best describe the microbiome? Yeah, so <clears throat> it, it, it depends what you talk about. If you talk about just the microbes, these 40 trillion microbes living inside of us, then the better term is really the microbiota, you know, which mm -hmm. is the plural of microbe. Um, and if you talk about the microbiome, it's the microbes, these bugs, plus their genes, um, plus their functional capabilities. So I, I think if you just want to speak about specific microbes, uh, the microbiota is the better term. But most of the time, you know, we're interested in the function of, of, of these microbes or the microbiome, that, that term. And it's, um, it's an interesting system. It's a system that we don't see. It's, it's vast, you know, the number of cells that are participating of bacterial cells and um, um, fungi and archaea, you know, it's, it's I mean, the, 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 the bacteria are the biggest part. Um, so it's it's invisible. It's it has by far the biggest and largest number of genes um, in the millions, as opposed to our twenty thousand human genes. Um, <clears throat> it lives in close symbiosis. The system with our gut um, it has produces molecules and has receptors that allows it to constantly communicate with our gut. Um, and through that communication with the gut, it also can communicate with the rest of our body because the gut is linked, networked into everything else in, 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 in our body. So it's, it's a remarkable system that we have ignored essentially in all our medical, you know, teaching and research until I would say, yeah, about 10 years ago when that science really took off in an exponential fashion. And um, we, we, we're definitely not at the end yet. You know, we do not know yet. Most of these millions of genes, we don't know what their function is, you know. So kind of remarkable that we can actually practice medicine without knowing half of the system, you know, what it does. I mean, it's, that, that always puzzles me, you know. And did you mention that we have 40 trillion microbes in the gut? Yeah, it's 40 trillion microbes. So, and, and there's in the beginning, you know, there have been comparisons. Um, people were saying we have 10 times more microbes than human cells. That was abandoned because if you add to the human cells our our blood cells, so the white, the, you know, the, the white blood cells and the red blood cells, 
then it's about you know 40 60 or i mean you could say roughly about half half uh, but it's still remarkable that you think um that that our when you know when we look at somebody we don't look at you know we look at their muscles we look at their face we look at their eyes we just look at, at, <laughs> at these microbes that make up um you know half of their their, their existence and uh so so in theory i mean there's more microbes you know get than they would be stars in the galaxy <laughs> yeah that's another sort of amazing comparison you know that um um hard it's it's really hard to imagine you know how that and i mean obviously there's just like you know in a in, in a galaxy there is organizing principles they're not just floating around in there and you know and i mean they're they're, they're spatially organized there's there's multiple ecosystems you know so the, the microbes by themselves are an ecosystem but then they have these subsystems you know, it starts in the mouth, it, then in the esophagus, in the stomach, in the small intestine, in the colon. Um, <clears throat> each of those subsystems has its own organizational principles, it's different players, different chemicals that are being produced and exchanged, and also differences in how these different ecosystems interact with our body. That brings me also back to something, you know, that in, in, in the traditional Chinese medicine, when they you know, when, when when they talk about the meridians and to talk about, uh, you know, they, they give them names based on organs, the, the large intestine and small intestine, the stomach. It's almost like, you know, you could say in, in a non-scientific way, you could almost say, well, what's emerging may be that the, the microbial ecosystem in our large intestine is connected through meridian-like biological connections to the rest of our body. And it does certain things it's not so what i'm trying to emphasize it's not just 40 trillion a, a, a blob of 40 trillion microorganisms it's it's a very well organized spatially and functionally organized system with subsystems that does specific things yeah and, and how quickly this was something i was just thinking about does those microbes can they be changed from say uh someone eating a meal like how quickly can those microbes be influenced um they can be um so there's there's always two aspects to that question one is the the basics of the microbial organization is programmed early in life um you know there's always this term of the first thousand years uh, the, the first thousand days <clears throat> or the first three years in life were this fundamental programming occurs um, and there's many factors starting in utero influences from the mother and then the delivery and uh, the breast milk and um, so all these factors contribute to this shaping of, of that of that system and so for a while people thought i mean once you have it it's stable and you know it doesn't change much but then that would mean no matter what you do in terms of lifestyle changes, it, it doesn't make a difference. And so we now know that <clears throat> this microbial system is highly adaptable. Um, its boundaries are defined by this early programming, the general boundaries, you know, but within these boundaries, it's, it's very adaptive and um, much more adaptive than our human cells. So 
I always bring this up, um, and, and probably one of the biggest advantages that we have by having this, this, this microbiome is humans have lived in different environments with different, you know, have gone through in history <clears throat> and evolution through starvations, um, to extinctions, you know, um, and, you know, at some point they were carnivores and lived of eating um, mammoths, you know, um, uh, and, and, and then, you know, some of them were vegetarians. So this ability to rapidly adapt to an environment uh, would not be possible with our human makeup because it, it takes genes about 15,000 years to adapt to a new environment. These microbes can do it within 48 hours. You know, if you, um, so I don't know if you're a vegetarian or an omnivore or a carnivore, um, but, but if you were a vegetarian and you were given and, and willing to do this, few vegetarians would be willing to do it, you know, given steak and hamburger for 48 hours, you would, and there have been studies on that, you, your microbes would adapt to this quickly. Um, both in their composition, what players are coming up, and also in their in their functions. And the same is true if you were an, a carnivore, were put on a vegetarian diet, that would also change within forty eight hours. Um, in th that doesn't mean that every time you eat something, you go to a, to a Thai restaurant and you have a different microbial makeup as <laughs> you know if you eat in in, in some other place. But um, this this high adaptability is something that that sort of comes back haunting us. So it's a theory that um, that sort of been been uh, proposed by the Sonnenbergs from Stanford um, that the microbes have adapted to this this Western diet, which is obviously a, a big problem, you know, for our health. Um, the microbes have adapted to it fairly rapidly. Our immune system has not adapted to it. Um, so now you have this mismatch of a rapidly adapted uh, microbiome interacting with a ancient, uh, like evolutionary ancient system, our immune system. And this mismatch creates this chronic stress reaction of the immune system and, and the body. So, um, so on the one side, the, the, the rapid adaptability of the microbiome is something extremely important for human survival. Uh, and it's probably one of the reasons that contract of symbiosis as was, was signed billions of years ago um, between animals and, 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 and microbes persisted because it was such a benefit. On the other hand, it can also create, you know, can create problems like this, this mismatch of um, of the rapidly adapted microbes that have, you know, that, that had to deal with, with the diet changes that we implemented 75 years ago and our much slower immune system. That's really interesting. And I want to come back there. One of the things that you said, which uh, has really interested me, was when you were talking about uh, the first thousand days. And it's made me think. Um, I'm really interested in uh, developmental psychology and how, you know, those first few years of our life can really have such an enormous impact. And it's made me think, how does uh, adverse childhood 
events experienced in those first 1,000 days alter our microbiome? And how does it alter the brain too? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I do want to emphasize when we talk first 1,000 days, that really starts in, in utero because so the pregnant mother has a microbiome. And so depending on what the mother does lifestyle-wise and diet-wise, these microbes produce signaling molecules that um, go through the mother's body, including crossing the placenta and going, to, you know, going to the to the developing fetus. Wow. So, the, so the mother's lifestyle, and I, I would say with diet and um, uh, you know chronic stress level being the two main factors, that will influence. So the fetus doesn't have his own microbiome, but it's it receives all these signals from the mother's microbiome. So it's it's not just starting at birth, you know, the the adversity starts, uh, you know, before, uh, before delivery. And then um, it kind of co continues, you know, there's been amazing studies that um, like stri chronically stressed animals have um, pregnant animals have a different microbial composition of um, um, of their vaginal microbes, and during delivery, it's, it's really a mixture of, uh, of fecal and vaginal microbes that the the the, the, the baby is, is is exposed to. But if the mother was stressed, she has a different microbial composition in her birth canal, which will then uh, colonize the, the 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 newborn's um, GI tract. So. It's not just the diet of the mother that that influences that you know that infant's development and brain development, but it's also this handing over of the first microbial ecosystem from the mother to the infant that's influenced by the, the mother's lifestyle and stress level and you know probably also um, you know probably also diet as well. So there's this this intense interconnectedness you know of starting in utero and then. Now, what happens when we talk about adverse early life events <clears throat> in a more traditional way, psychological way, <clears throat> it, 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 it became obvious, um, <clears throat> both from human observations, as many studies, that it can, uh, you know, influence not just brain development, but uh, has a major influence on health, many aspects of health and chronic disease. <clears throat> and early adverse life events would include not just as initially thought like sexual abuse. <clears throat> Excuse me. Much more common are other things like emotional neglect or, um, you know, disharmony between the parents, instability of the family environment, um, chronic illness of the primary caregiver, chronic stress of the primary caregiver. So there's many of these factors that have been studied. There's questionnaires to do this, and then it's been shown in in animal models um, that um, you know this model called maternal separation. You take the litter away from the from the mother, and um, then the offspring that litter that has been separated for 180 minutes a day for two weeks from the mother. Um, develops an altered stress responsiveness, um, changes in the brain, molecular changes. Um, 
And it's interesting because initially it was thought it's 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 that separation, that trauma of separation. But newer research has already shown that the mother is so stressed when the pups are taken away for three hours each day that the, the maternal behavior changes towards the pups. So the mother that normally licks the pups and uh, grooms them and has a particular position is arched back um, position sort of spreading out over the pups that that's disturbed. So it's the stress of the mother changing the maternal behavior that then um, affects these developments in the in, 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 in the pups. And then the latest thing of that was of that story first, like when we and many others, you know, did sort of pioneering work in this field. I mean, we also found that there's, there's an alteration in gut function um, and um, you know, these pups had, had um, a greater frequency of, of fecal pellet expulsion and were more sensitive to gut distension. And um, but then, you know, more more recently, research has shown um, a friend and colleague John Cryan in, in, in Cork, Ireland, that um, it also affects the microbial composition and, 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 and function. And that's not surprising because so the microbes, their environment is the gut. So if the gut changes in its peristalsis, its, its contractions and its the fluid secretion, that changes the environment of the microbes. So the microbes, as we said earlier, adapt to that. And um, so when you think about it, the chronic stress of the mother that, that has some pups removed for two or three hours a day, translating into a changed stress system of the pups, the growing of pups, that affects the gut function and that affects the microbes. So it's like this chain of events that 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 happens. And um, we've done a published a recent study that in adults, you know, with and without a history of early adversity, that we found that um, that gut microbial metabolites were different in the group that indicated, I mean, this is retrospective on questionnaires, that they had a positive early adverse life history. Mm -hmm. So it may well be that that persists throughout life, you know, and that this altered gut microbiome then plays a role why people with early adversity have a higher frequency of chronic, of chronic diseases of all kinds, you know, so. Right. right. I, I'm this is really interesting to me because I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Frank Lipman on the podcast, and um, I remember that he said that to him health was a kind of yin and yang equation, and the yin was the it was the eight hours of sleep, it was the fruits and the vegetables, it was the legumes, um, you know, it was the optimizing your health through an aura ring or you know <laughs> whatever yeah. your vehicle of choices, and then the yang was it was the love and the joy and the gratitude and the connectedness. And I was, I would say, quite skeptical about that. I mean, to me, I kind of looked at health really through a, a, a biological and a physical state as opposed to, I guess, a psychological one. Uh, but recently I read a great book and it was called uh, Dying to Be Me. And for the first time, it was really one of those books that it really got me thinking about 
the impact that thoughts and emotions and feelings can actually have on our health. And listening to you, there, that really got me thinking. And do you believe that, say, chronic, I guess, toxic emotions would be the word I would use, hate, anger, resentment, could significantly affect those microbes in our gut? Yeah, I, I'm almost convinced of that, you know, <clears throat> um, through, because we know, I mean, there are, there are pathways, you know, you know there's, there's, there's at least two major pathways that transmits whatever goes on in the brain to our microbes. So one is the direct pathway. The sympathetic nervous system has been best studied with this, um, with its neurotransmitter, norepinephrine. Um, so the, the first studies were, you know, people added norepinephrine to um, a petri dish with isolated cells and <clears throat> isolated microbes, and um, and these microbes not only change behavior but also change their gene expression. Um, and initially, this was thought to only happen with pathogens, um, like with E. coli, um, but then it, you know, I, I think up to fifteen different types of microbes have been studied. Both the both the pathogens, which make these pathogens more aggressive, this was a science that was um, kind of um, inspired by. I mean, inspired in quotation marks by um, people studying pigs that were taken to slaughter that develop all kinds of diseases and get sick and die. <clears throat> and then it was found that you know their excessive stimulation of their sympathetic nervous system affects their gut big surprise you know and but also their their they got microbes and the greater propensity of these animals for infections was pretty related to that these microbes became more aggressive under that stress and um so in the, but in the meantime we also know it's not just pathogens that are being altered it's it's also um the the good guys that live in our gut so so stress particularly chronic stress you we almost know for sure and there's many studies now in monkeys and humans they change both the um the relative abundances the diversity the, and the function of many good microbes um like lactobacilli in our in our gut so um that's one thing that's a direct effect and it's mediated by receptors for our own stress neurotransmitters norepinephrine on the microbes which is an amazing thing when you think about it um then but the other one is that we mentioned earlier stress is so closely connected to gut function every, every aspect of gut function uh, blood flow secretion of fluid secretion of acid um contractions um, you know what we call motility transit times um that that's that that chronic stress essentially changes the environment. You know, all of a sudden the microbes live in a different environment. They're, they're more, they're affected directly, but they're also affected in, the, in that environment that they live in. And so this has been, you know, studied mainly for, for, for stress. Um, and I, I would say chronic stress is always the more relevant things for, you know, for human uh, psychopathology. Um, and, and certainly we are exposed to, you know, a lot more chronic stress today than, than our ancestors who had more severe acute stresses, but not that cumulative um, uh, allostatic load, as, as, as we call it. 
and um and yeah i would say even though the studies are not as clear you know like anger uh, all, all the negative emotions um um anger fear um um and we you know like that all these negative emotions essentially create a mirror image at the gut level and even the gut microbial level some of these may not be so it may take a while before science really um, disentangles this with this clearly we're still in the midst of the rapid evolution of technologies of studying details of gut microbial function um, but based on what we know today about brain gut interactions and how microbes are affected by these interactions i i would bet all my money on on it that um, both positive and negative emotions create these these images at the at the gut level at the microbial level and at the genetic level really at, at the gene expression level it's not, it's not it's not just having more or less of these bugs there it's it's really changes gene expression and transcription uh, you know I find this so fascinating. And one thing that I got from uh, your book, The Mind-Gut Connection, was how much serotonin there is in the gut. Uh, isn't it like 95% or something like that of the serotonin is in the gut? I find that absolutely fascinating. And then that makes me think, how uh, much is our mental health impacted by, I guess, the foods and the diet that we consume? Yeah, no, this is definitely something, you know, this whole field of um, nutritional psychiatry, you know, it, it's in its infancy, <clears throat> but there's already evidence for that, that this, you know, that, that food plays a significant role. <clears throat> there's so many other factors. So the problem is there's so many other factors that have changed, let's say in the last 75 years, in our lifestyles, our chronic stress level, um, you know, just the, just the, the increase in stress level during the last two years of the pandemic <clears throat> are tremendous. So how much, you know, what the relative roles are <clears throat> of the diet part and of the stress part is, is hard to disentangle. But they interfere with each other as well, because a lot of people under stress eat an, an unhealthier diet, you know, more fast food, uh, more comfort foods to so temporarily suppress the anxiety and, and the stress perception. Um, <clears throat> but this nutritional psychiatry, it's in its infancy, we know from some areas, like the serotonin story and the, you know, the precursor serotonin being tryptophan, the essential amino acid, that you know 50 years ago we thought the main function of tryptophan is we need that for building proteins in our bodies the traditional and uh, nutrition theory in the meantime we know that <clears throat> you know that our microbes break down together with the help of other enzymes in our gut um, metabolize tryptophan into different neurotransmitters some good some bad um serotonin clearly one of the good ones um but then there's also you know a substance called kynuronin which has been implicated in many negative <clears throat> health effects on on the brain and also um um the indoles that's, a, that's another group 
And it's kind of interesting that, <clears throat> sorry, I, mean, I hope you're going to be able to cut out some of, of this. Of course, of course. We've got a guy, he does a good job. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's sort of interesting that, I mean, again, that, that the brain plays a big role in determining what pathway the microbes will take this tryptophan if they take it towards mm -hmm. serotonin. Um, but when you're stressed, when you're chronically stressed, it takes it more towards this indole pathway and the canurinine pathway, which has negative effects on the nervous system. And the, so this is definitely a yin and yang where this applies to, you know, that you have, um, um, you take tryptophan as a precursor, and then you can generate the, the beneficial parts and 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 the negative parts and the balance of these two ultimately determines your health status um, <clears throat> but this tryptophan is only one of several amino acids you know that <clears throat> is broken down into um into these transmitters that we're now beginning to understand like indoxyl sulfate is one of these indoles that has shown up in increased amounts in um kids with autism spectrum disorder and in um, Alzheimer's disease and which is another interesting thing that some some of these metabolites are showing up not just in one disease it's almost it seems to me pure speculation you know my my holistic brain sort of projects this in the future <clears throat> that all our mental diseases are just mosaics of of different subtle disturbances of these balances between, you know, between these transmitters, wow. and with the microbes playing a big role in determining what what um, relationships and relative abundances there are. That when you say somebody has, and and we know this because you know there's obviously comorbidity between anxiety and depression, but also between um, anxiety and Alzheimer's disease and. Uh, really between many of these neurological and psychiatric disorders. And I, I think the best explanation is that you have substances like this endoxyl sulfate that the microbes generate exclusively. So they only they have the enzyme that can break down tryptophan in, into these indoles, not our bodies, only the microbes. That they would have such an important role in determining this, these balances between these different metabolites that ultimately affect our our brain health you know it's it's pretty remarkable that, that that really makes me think then that if uh these microbes play such an essential part even potentially in as you say psychiatric illness potentially um then how much control does uh the person listening to this have now over the health of uh let's say the microbiota, the microbes, or how much of that is controlled by, I guess, genetics, or as you say, early life uh, experiences. <clears throat> yeah, so it's definitely not one, one factor. You know, I think uh, when, we, when we think about what, what ability do we have to counteract these multiple factors that determine, you know, who we are and what state of health we're in. So we talked about the early life events. We talked about the prenatal events. Genetics, definitely a big event in some diseases more than in others. So if you don't have, if you don't have the vulnerability genes for autism spectrum disorders, which about, 
I think it's about 10% of the population has these vulnerability genes, which is interesting in itself because it means there must be some adaptive value to have those traits, you know, these autistic or Asperger-like traits. And I wouldn't be surprised in this new, in this new world of um, everything being on social media, on the internet, um, that, that these, some of these traits are actually advantageous, you know, but if you have these, 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 uh, these uh, autism spectrum vulnerability genes, then other factors like diet and what happens, um, your mother's diet, or if your mother was obese when she was pregnant, um, interact with these vulnerability genes and make it much more likely that you, you develop or this, this child develops. And, 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 and that's pretty true about all, all our diseases, you know, to varying degrees. Words. In some, the genetics play a bigger role. In others, these epigenetic factors or early life events play a bigger role. It's, um, again, fast forwarding 50 years from now, I predict we'll have supercomputers that can actually calculate that, that risk. You know, you put in all this stuff in the genetics and the epigenetics and the, um, and the diet part. And then you get a risk score, you know, of, um, and we, I mean, we may not be 50 years away from this. There's already attempts, you know, to get to that closer by, by companies and, and scientists, but I think that's certainly going to happen and it will require, you know, taking all these factors into consideration. Um, and, and there's, there's unique human factors as well. You know, resilience is another one. So we, we know relatively little about resilience. You may have, you may have all these bad things that happened to you early in life. And there are studies on this. We've, we've done a survey on it. You may have had, uh, you know, the early adversity and you may have the genetics, but then if you score very high on the resilience uh, scale, then you may not be affected by all this, you know, so there's, there's some innate ability of the brain to counteract all the negative influences. Um, you know, th th that's another fascinating area about, you know, health in general. We've, we've focused so much on the disease and the factors that cause disease that we've kind of neglected the resilience part and what biology underlies resilience and how can we, how can we teach or strengthen the resilience? You know, that I, I think that's a really big part of health. And, Sure, for sure. Um, I always considered uh, weight loss to be a simple equation. To me, it was always a simple formula, calories in versus calories out. <laughs> and I mean, I personally used a fitness tracker, say uh, my fitness pal. Uh, I would aim for, say, a 500 calorie deficit per day. Over the course of a week, I would be in a 3,500 calorie deficit which was a pound of body fat. And, you know, I knew that consistently that could work for me. Uh, Will Bolshevitz, when he came on the show, he said that I don't think that it's actually that simple. I think that the microbiome has a lot to say about that. How does the microbes, you know, get impact uh, weight loss or weight gain? So, um, so, so we certainly know from, um, from studies that people with obesity, you know, have different microbial compositions and different metabolites, which then, you know, play a role in development of, 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 of diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, 
So certainly, um, you know, our, our microbes, so our ancestors in evolution, a big part of their, um, of their nutrition, of, of, of their calories came from what the microbes did with all the plant food that they ate. You know, they, so the, the average intake has been estimated 80 grams of fiber per day for some of our ancestors, even some, you know, some people living in, in, in Africa that still live on, on so pre-industrial diets. And what, what do we eat now in the modern world? What's the average now? Uh, well, it's recommended. I think it's recommended twenty or thirty, <laughs> but, but 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 in reality, it's pretty less than ten. You know, if the the, the, the hyper um, the, the ultra processed diet is taking all the fi fibers out, and it's we've we've developed a, a taste preference for fiber free food essentially. You know, it's, um, and that's marketed a, a, you know very aggressively. So. But going back, you know, in evolution, so the so the microbes served this capacity of extracting or sort of harvesting probably about thirty percent of our caloric needs from from breaking down this plant-based food, these these complex carbohydrates, fiber, into absorbable uh, molecules like short-chain fatty acids, and um, so this you know, this, this, this played a big role and then it has changed dramatically. Now the microbes get very little of, 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 of that's kind of a food. Um, so we absorb most of our uh, calories in the small intestine. We don't rely on the microbes anymore. And over evolution, our colon has gotten smaller because we don't need this big, you know, habitat for our microbes to, to do the work. And, uh, <clears throat> So you could say, you know, the, the, the microbes still play a big role in, in harvesting calories and um, how that differs between people that are obese um, and so get the same, same amount of calories, but depending on if it's more fiber rich or less than fiber, um, we would ultimately, uh, you know, get less, less calories. I mean, one thing that plays a role there, the, the microbial breakdown of, of plant-based fiber into absorbable short-chain fatty acids is less efficient um, than the absorption of small intestine, you know, which is rapid sh glu uh, glucose, sugar, and fats rapidly absorbed in our small intestine, much faster, much more efficient than in, in, the, in the colon. So if somebody, you could say somebody eats the same amount of calories, but one is two thirds in the form of fiber and plant-based foods, and the other um, two thirds in the form of highly processed food. Maybe the same over uh, over amount of calories, but that person that relies on the microbes will gain much less weight uh, than 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 somebody who absorbs it all rapidly within the small intestine. I mean, just take like you know, like the desserts So somebody, uh, it's kind of interesting, like on, on, in some parts of the US, like in, in Southern California, you know, many restaurants have stopped serving uh, desserts because people are so calorie conscious. And if you calculate, I put this, these numbers in my book, I've forgotten the exact numbers, but you know, the, the, the typical dessert that you would get in some of the most popular restaurants, you know, is uh, more than a thousand calories, you know, and it's, it's all in form of fat and sugar, 
that you absorb rapidly. So nothing goes to the microbes. <clears throat> As opposed to eating a piece of fruit um, at the end of your meal, uh, you know, half of which is fiber and is is less efficiently converted into short chain fatty acids. So, you know, that, that that's sort of a good example of, of, of that. So it's not um, it's not just the amount of calories that you count, but it's also um, I mean, were these calories processed? Are they processed in the less efficient way, in the ancient way, in our in our large intestine, or are they absorbed rapidly in the small intestine? So I, I think the microbes do play do play a big role, you know. And many people, so you give this example that you practice, which is effective for a lot of people. Not everybody can do it to go into these daily calorie deficits, you know. Um, but another way of doing it is you, you may want to eat the same amount, but it's you change to a largely plant-based diet and um, will lose weight on that as well. You know, so. I'm, we've gone through so much today. We've covered so much, so much ground. I want to finish off. Um, we've talked about kind of the importance of, uh, of the get of, we've got, we've gone through so much today. I'd love to just finish off. Um, and ask you for your uh, best tips, I guess. Could be dietary, could be lifestyle, could be anything you like for uh, a, to keep our microbes in our gut healthy. What would be some of your best tips? So, well, let's, yeah, let's start with the most general thing. So it's, it's clearly, it's lifestyle, it's, it's diet, it's sleep, it's exercise, and it's the mind, you know, a, mm. a calm, non-reactive minds so they all interact and you know we don't have time to talk about this but they, they all converge on the gut i mean all these factors you know influence the immune system in the gut and if you talk about diet uh, simple advice is um, focus on what you eat so that's one thing and you know i think a lot of evidence supports this concept of uh, the largely plant-based diet i i somewhat disagree or slightly disagree with with my friend will um so he's a vegan i'm not a vegan i we eat fish and um poultry which i don't think have any negative effects on your health depending on so here's point number two it's not just what you eat make sure you know where your food comes from is it all farm raised you know so farm raised salmon doesn't have the omega-3 fatty acids anymore was you know is is, is depleted um, food that's grown with chemical fertilizers in a modern agricultural way is uh, deficient in polyphenols very important health uh, you know uh, promoting uh, type of molecule um, so where the food is coming from maybe equally important is what you're eating um, so the, the other thing the third thing is this is where it comes in this you know this one health concept that i um, you know promote um, think about what impact that food that you eat has on the environment and on the planet that's third and the fourth one is when do you eat it you know do, do you stick to a a time restricted eating schedule which has gotten a lot of attention um you know people refer to this as intermittent fasting i I'd like the time-restricted eating name better because it's really 
compressing the amount of time that you put food in your stomach to eight hours and leave the gut for 16 hours on its own. That is important because the gut does a lot of things when it's not full with food and, and occupied with processing food. It generates a, a cleansing mechanism of contractions. Um, it changes the distance between the microbes and, and your gut and the interactions. Um, so there's a lot of positive things that happen during the 16 hours of um, food restriction. And you can still eat, you know, it's, you can eat the cake and have it too. You can still eat your, your same amount of calories, you know, but it's restricted to a certain window during the day. Everybody can do that. It's not that, that hard to do. It's not as hard to do as, as true fasting where you don't eat for a day or, you know, longer. So four, four factors in terms of diet, what do you eat? Um, when you eat it, where does it come from and what impact it has on, uh, on the, on the planet? It's a lot to think about when you go to the market, you know, but I think gradually, I think we have to teach people to develop that consciousness. Um, um, in terms of sleep, <clears throat> sleep is really important, kind of goes along with this time restricted eating, because when you sleep, obviously your gut is empty, um, unless you have a bad habit of waking up at two in the morning and then you know, eating a, a bowl of ice cream. Uh, and going back to sleep, it should be empty during your sleep. So a good night's sleep has <clears throat> a beneficial effect on the gut and its microbes. There's many studies on that as well. Um, it's it has kind of an anti-inflammatory effect on you know on, on the immune system within the gut. So that that's um, exercise. Moderate exercise is definitely beneficial. There's many examples now even before the microbiome that, you know, a moderate amount of regular aerobic exercise will add to, you know, combined with diet and a few other factors, 10 disease-free years to your life when you started age 50. Um, whereas, you know, extreme exercise is a stress for the body and the gut, just like any psychological stress. Um, there's exceptions, I think, to this rule of um, high-performance athletes, which obviously don't do this for their entire life. But um, even those athletes, I have a lot of patients that come with gut problems, like marathon runners, ultra-marathon runners. It's not healthy for the gut, that we know for sure, and nor for your microbes. You know, it does, it almost does the same bad things as as chronic stress does on on on, on your gut. So regular, moderate aerobic exercise is another one of those. Um, and then the last but not least, you know, a mindfulness attitude that you always, you know, remind yourself what happens in your brain doesn't stay in the brain. It goes to your gut. It goes to the rest of your body. It goes to your microbes, as we talked about earlier. And practicing this this mindful uh, lifestyle, it's become very popular in, in, in the U.S. Uh, I, I don't know about the U.K., there's apps to do this um so everybody can can do this so the good thing is all the things that i told you are not rocket science do not require huge efforts you know there's apps for all of these now for for the diet part for the uh, you know for the exercise part um so i i think the 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 
the web-based devices have made it easier to follow these. As long as you have a master plan, what do you need to do? And not get distracted by, you know, all this chatter on the internet about here's the latest fat diet and you can't eat this and you can't eat this. And, and then you get labels on your food that have 15 categories of items that are not, does not contain, you know, 15 things. <clears throat> that's not the way to go you know the way to go is to really have an active program feel that you are responsible you're in charge and you can influence your your health you know if you start with this early if you start with this in age 80 and have cognitive decline not sure you will do a lot you know but if you start at 40 or even at 30 with some of these um, techniques i i think you're your long-term health and longevity is in your hands really um i love it man that was fantastic advice i got one last question for you that we sign off all our podcasts with and then please signpost these guys to wherever you want to send them to my last question for you that we always ask is what makes a life worth living yeah very good i mean you should have asked me this before to think about it um I personally think, and I've, you know, I've worked on this a lot in, in my own life and now even more than, than earlier, where you sort of lived, lived your life sort of it unfolded more. Now, you know, you're much more conscious. <clears throat> I would say there's a few points. It's a life filled with passion that, um, and excitement that you're, whatever you do, it comes out of passion and excitement. I think that's a key thing. I've observed this in many people in their 90s that kept that attitude. Um, I think a, um, you know, compassion is a very important part of it. Um, it's not just you. You are just one part of a huge network on the planet. And um, anything you do for that network ultimately is good for you as well for your health. Many studies, scientific studies that have shown this, um, uh, you know, that, that, that happiness, um, that you get more benefit health-wise from an attitude of, of compassion and um, doing meaningful things for you and for others than just your personal happiness. So I would say those would be the main things, you know, the more I look at this from my own profession, uh, I think the biggest satisfaction I get when I think back, how many patients I've helped and made their life better and how many students I've helped in their careers. I mean, that, that makes me feel really good. And that I've, that I've only done things in my, in my life that were guided by my passion and not by money, not by conventions, by advice from my parents, but for my own passion. I think that I would say that's the important one. I love it, man. Where can these guys connect with you? Um, probably an easy way to connect with me is on my website, emronmeyer.com. Just say Emron Mayer with M-A-Y-E-R.com. And they you know, can sign up for a newsletter, uh, which will give them up-to-date information. All my social, I'm, I'm on all the social media. That's all this information is on, is on the website. Um, um, yeah, I would say that's the easiest way to connect with me. And I hope a lot of your listeners will take advantage of that. Absolutely. I'll link 
uh, our audience to their books of yours, which we've discussed today. Man, this was a real, real pleasure for me. This was an information-dense hour. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's, it was a pleasure. What I said in the beginning, it's wonderful to meet some of these extremely educated, um, you know, um, wise podcast hosts, because the kind of questions you ask are, are just really, you know, gets me excited to, to, to answer them. 